WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. Charlotte is facing a number of public health concerns right now. Mecklenburg County once again in the high zone when it comes to COVID community spread. Lots of folks masking up again and monkeypox growing too. Right now, Mecklenburg County has half of the state's current cases. Joining us today, Mecklenburg County Health Director, Dr. Raynard Washington. Doctor, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, let's begin with monkeypox. In terms of vaccinations, where do we stand as a county? Uh, right now as a county, we're in a much better position than we were just a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were fortunate enough to receive an additional 2,000 doses on Monday. Uh, and so that certainly helped us with our supply and we're working as quickly as possible to get those 2,000 doses administered throughout this week and early next week uh, and expect that we will continue to receive shipments on a routine basis now. Uh, the CDC has released sort of a phase three of the vaccine rollout and so we're expecting our volumes to increase. Uh, and so we are, we're working as quickly as possible to vaccinate as many people as possible. Uh, that being said, our supply is still uh, not sufficient for our demand. We have well over 2,100 people on our wait list as of yesterday. Uh, and so we're working as quickly as possible to get folks into the clinics uh, that we have across the county. And by the way, shout out to all the workers at the health departments because I, I mean, I've talked to them, I've seen them and, and they're doing just a fantastic job. Um, the, the U.S. it seemed like jumped from dozens of cases to thousands in, in a short amount of time. And, and some have criticized the federal government's initial response as, as being too slow, too flat footed. From your specific vantage point as a local health department director, do you think they were too late to respond to this? Uh, I don't necessarily think they were too late. I think uh, as with any response, as we saw with COVID response, there is a window of time it takes for to operationalize response. Uh, and to activate various components of the response uh, and to learn sort of uh, specifically what's happening with the with the outbreak on the ground, which is helpful information uh, because this outbreak could have been impacting any different types of uh, subgroups within our community. Uh, and so I think that the, the federal government, state government, and certainly here locally, we operationalize and activate it as quickly as possible. I know we began our planning locally well before uh, the we had our first case. Uh, and so we spent about three or four weeks uh, activating an incident command structure here locally, as well as preparing for uh, various aspects of our local response. And so uh, it, it definitely takes some time to get started, uh, but certainly I think uh, all, all uh, engines are firing towards containment at this point, uh, and we're very hopeful that we're, we'll reach that point. Uh, Mecklenburg County right now has half of the state's cases. Um, any reason believe, you believe that that's the case beyond just the fact that, that we're also a, a populated city? Yeah, so I think certainly our population specifically has uh, is one of the underlying driving factors. We are a densely populated urban area. Uh, we, we believe based on uh, not complete estimates, but some estimates that we have of the size of the LGBTQ population here in Mecklenburg County uh, being greater than potentially some other counties in the state. Uh, and so, of course, because that community is being most impacted right now, uh, certainly we would expect that there's more risk here in Mecklenburg County compared to other jurisdictions. I, I want to get to uh, the gay and trans community because I, I know there's some big questions there coming up uh, in just a minute. But first, uh, should the general public now be concerned about getting that vaccine or are we are not yet at that phase? Yeah, we're certainly not at that phase. You know, I know the number 39 is a, a quick jump from where we were, let's even say a week ago, uh, but certainly we are, uh, we're, we're, we still have uh, low enough transmission here where I don't believe uh, that 
there is a, a huge risk to the general public. That being said, there is risk, um, there is some risk, uh, but the biggest restriction we have right now related to vaccines is our supply. And so I know our federal partners are working with the manufacturers uh, to uh, procure more vaccine for the community, uh, for the, the entire country, but specifically to be distributed in communities. Uh, and so once we have an adequate supply, uh, and I know that that's gonna take several months, it's not going to be a very short period of time because it has to be produced. Uh, and so we're, we're uh, anticipating that that will happen over the next several months. But until that time, we will have to continue prioritizing individuals most proximal to the outbreak uh, and at greatest risk of infection. Uh, Charlotte Pride is in a couple of weeks. Uh, we know, as you alluded to, this uh, is disproportionately impacting the LGBTQ community. Um, what is being done to make sure that that event, uh, which is usually one of the biggest events in Charlotte, the parade is the biggest parade in Charlotte. We're talking about tens of thousands, even 100,000 people. Uh, is there a way to have that event and be safe? Absolutely. So we've been working. Uh, I started working with the president of Charlotte Pride just about uh, a couple months ago, again, as a part of our preparations. Uh, and we talked quite a bit about planning, uh, but specifically outreach and education. So monkeypox is, is very different than COVID-19. And so I want folks to understand that very clearly. Uh, COVID-19 is predominantly spread through respiratory uh, transmission. Uh, and transmission is a lot easier with COVID than it is monkeypox. Uh, monkeypox is almost always symptomatic. Uh, and unlike COVID, back in the early days of COVID, when uh, there wasn't uh, as much, uh, when there are people who had COVID with no symptoms and were still able to transmit it. Uh, so we've been working to uh, proactively prepare for uh, Charlotte Pride with their leadership team, uh, making sure that they have education and awareness available. Our teams will be out on the ground that entire weekend uh, in the mix and working, and we'll be offering vaccines during the Pride event as well. Uh, but we're also working right now because, of course, we're focused on containment. That's a couple weeks out. Uh, and so we're trying to get all the high-risk patients that we can possibly get in to get vaccinated. Uh, and, of course, our communicable disease team is working uh, diligently at contact tracing every confirmed case, uh, which is where we're, we're having opportunities to identify folks who were exposed and intervene. Uh, there are some folks out there who, are, and I'm not sure that the that, um, that they're coming from the the purest of political uh, standpoints, but they they say, oh, you know, this is a a gay disease right now. It's uh, basically an STI. Um, people are just being politically correct about the way they're talking about this. Why are they wrong? Yeah, that, that's that's wrong. So you know, uh, monkeypox is is not uh, an STI in the sense that it's not transmitted specifically or exclusively during sexual contact uh, or through sexual fluids. And so, in fact, individuals it's it's spread through close intimate contact, a close personal contact. Uh, which, of course, if you're having sexual contact, then, of course, you're having uh, close physical contact. But you don't have to have sexual contact in order for you to transmit the virus of one person to the next, uh, simply by touching uh, a lesion or being in contact with some of the, the uh, particles or debris from the lesion, uh, as well as potentially large respiratory droplets. So if you're kissing uh, or exchanging lots of saliva, uh, in those cases, you can also transmit the virus, uh, unlike most STIs where, where transmission requires sexual transmission so uh, it, or sexual intercourse or interactions. And so I think that's important uh, because, as you know, we've had our first cases among kids in the country uh, who were exposed uh, by adults. And so it's important for us to recognize that, that this certainly could be a risk for anyone in the community. Thanks for clearing that up. And, and hopefully our viewers are a little bit smarter now now that you've explained that. Um, it, what do you think? I think right now North Carolina ranks 16th in the country for case counts. Uh, we, we know that at least 
Three states have declared states of emergency. Do you see uh, that in the future of our state? I know you're at the local level, but um, do you see that happening here? So I think it's um, it's an interesting question. I think where we are right now in the outbreak, uh, we are managing well. You know, states of emergency allow us uh, and government to uh, to take advantage of some uh, specific or special uh, exceptions to procurements and policies so that we can actually get our work done as a response. Uh, it also allows us from a clinical perspective to make some modifications to how we deliver care uh, so that we're able to deliver massive amounts of care to a lot of people. For example, allowing nurses to do certain things that they would not otherwise be able to do if we weren't in a state of emergency. Uh, also allows us to use medications or, or, or uh, pharmaceutical options, therapeutic or vaccinations under emergency use authorization. Uh, at this time, we are not needing any of those particular uh, measures to be able to manage our response. Uh, and the scale of the outbreak at this point, I don't believe uh, today will warrant a state of emergency. However, that could change really quickly. Uh, as things on the ground change, as, as transmission on the ground changes, as more counties have cases, uh, I imagine our partners at the state will be making their decisions based on uh, what's happening in real time. And so uh, very well, that decision could change tomorrow, uh, depending on what's happening. Final question on monkeypox. If you're a person and you fall in one of these vulnerable populations that, that are uh, targeted, men having sex with men, that, that sort of thing, the, um, what do you need to do uh, in order to get this vaccine here in Mecklenburg County? Get on the wait list? Yeah, so the, the best thing you do is get on the wait list. Uh, the wait list is at the mecnc.gov website uh, on the health department's page. Uh, add yourself to the wait list, and we are working through that really quickly. Again, it's an active wait list, so as appointments come available, we're slotting people in and taking them off the wait list. Uh, and if you have questions or concerns, uh, specifically if you have uh, any concerns that you may have been exposed to monkeypox, or you're concerned that you may have monkeypox, please give us a call or see your provider. Uh, you wanna make sure if you have any symptoms, any signs or symptoms, and that includes flu-like symptoms or unknown or unexplained rashes or lesions anywhere in your body, particularly in the genital areas, uh, you wanna have those checked by a provider and the provider will let you know if you need to get tested. Uh, of course, get tested and if you've been exposed, we want you to get vaccinated. We'll pause the interview there. And on the other side of the break, we're gonna talk COVID here in Charlotte. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Our guest this morning, Mecklenburg County Health Director, Dr. Raynard Washington. Okay, let's talk about uh, COVID. Uh, we're back now in the high zone when it comes to community spread. Does, does that now trigger a public health policy change? Uh, it certainly triggers a public health recommendation change, and so we have shifted our recommendations to include uh, recommending indoor masking for individuals, for everyone in the public when they're outdoors, when they're in indoor public settings, excuse me. Uh, and so that is uh, in alignment with the CDC's recommendations for when communities are in the high level. Uh, and so we have uh, certainly encouraged folks to consider masking when they go out in public, uh, especially if you're in higher risk settings. And I think one of the things as COVID is with us, and uh, we know it's it's, it's going to be circulating on a routine basis. Uh, it's important for folks to recognize there are certain settings that are just incredibly more high risk than others. Uh, and when you're in those kinds of settings where you're in close indoor proximity to a lot of people, uh, it's important that you take additional precautions. Uh, and at the base of those precautions, if we think about multiple layers, is making sure we're vaccinated, making sure that you have that level of protection. Uh, so if you do contract COVID, uh, you have the best chance of survival and uh, low, low acuity or low morbidity disease. I know you hate this question, but I got to ask it anyway. Um, is a mask mandate going to come back? Uh, that is not that's not planned at this time. OK, uh, what about when it comes to uh, vaccines in general? You touched on it, but but 
do we have enough people getting those boosters? I, I know that's been a concern. Um, and also, what about kids getting vaccinated? Those rates have not been what uh, folks in your field had hoped they would be. Certainly, I think uh, we, we always have opportunity for to do more. You know, our vaccination rates as a community have slowly increased over the last several months, but at a very slow rate. And so one of the things that I, uh, when I was speaking to the county commissioners earlier this week, uh, it's an area where we continue to work on the ground to ensure that we're creating access points in the community and providing education for folks who may still be hesitant or not aware that they need a booster, uh, which is something that's really important for us at this time is making sure folks who are eligible for boosters know they're eligible and then creating easy opportunities. So we're still out knocking on doors, hosting community events, uh, and making sure that people are able uh, to access COVID-19 vaccines in the community. Uh, earlier this week, we did a piece on Wake Up Charlotte about how a lot of kids out there ha have fallen back on their routine vaccinations and in the last couple of years uh, during the pandemic for a variety of reasons. What message do you have for parents when it comes to getting your kids their routine vaccines as kids go back to school in the next few weeks? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Great question. I'm so glad you brought this up because it's really important for us in public health uh, as we respond to these ongoing infectious disease outbreaks that, that continue to arise in our community, uh, that we use the tools we have available to keep others from emerging. I think you probably saw uh, earlier this uh, week and last week, uh, the, the talk of polio potentially in New York. Uh, and it's important for our kids to have those vaccines because that's what allows us to keep these uh, infectious illnesses under control. Uh, so if you have any questions or concerns, please call us here at the health department. We are doing a number of back to school events right now uh, on the weekends, uh, as well as in our clinics every day uh, to ensure that kids are up to speed uh, on their immunizations ahead of going back to school. Uh, we will have also a number of events just before the CMS inclusion date uh, to ensure that students are able to stay in school uh, and have all the shots on board they need to not just stay in school, but to protect themselves from infectious illnesses. Be honest, did you ever think we were going to be talking about polio again? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, I, I will tell you that was somewhat surprising, I think, for many of us in public health, uh, but certainly there's always the risk. And I think it's important for uh, it's an important message for the community, though, to recognize uh, we don't think about often measles and mumps and polio and all those infections that we most of us don't have to worry about because we've been vaccinated against. Uh, and the key to that is that we've been vaccinated against it. And so uh, vaccination is a remarkable science and it is absolutely critical to sustaining life uh, and avoiding the impact of these kinds of infections illnesses that continue to arise. Remarkable science, and it's been around for a long time. It's, it's not new by any means. All right, Dr. Raynard Washington. Doctor, thanks for coming on. We appreciate the work you're doing on, on, the people, on behalf of the people here in Mecklenburg County. My pleasure. All right, more Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. After sitting vacant for years, the old Eastland Mall site has new life again. This week, lawmakers, business leaders, and those in the neighborhood gathered to celebrate the groundbreaking of a redevelopment project. Something like 13 years in the making. Do you realize that Eastland Mall closed 13 years ago? The site will be transformed into a vibrant destination that encourages economic growth for the Queen City. WCNC Shroud's Lexi Wilson has more on what people can expect. The passage of time seems to be the only thing that's been moving at the former Eastland Mall site. In 1975, it was the largest mall in North Carolina. For many years, it was the heartbeat of this East Charlotte community. These days, it's home to weeds and faded memories. Who here remembers the food court? Dare I say it, the ice skating rink. Now, the 80 acres off of Central Avenue is about to come back to life. 
Today is the day that we create another space, a space that will carry our commitment to this community. One, two, three, This place will soon be called Eastland Yard. Developers Crossland Southeast plans a mixed-use development here, including apartments, shops, offices, and restaurants. I am happy. I think the, the majority of the east side is happy that they see something happening. J. Michael Haithcock is part of a nonprofit advocacy group called Charlotte East. He's hopeful the redevelopment will bring economic growth the area has long needed. It's important that this gets built and something gets built for everybody and, um, and then hopefully this will be the catalyst for a lot of other great things to follow. And with Tebber Sports' departure from the project, it opens a door for a new partner to create something different on 20 acres of land. Haithcock hopes it'll support the community's needs. Would really like it to, to be people-oriented in the sense that something everybody could use. Lexi Wilson reporting for us there. In all, the project will take about five years to complete. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. It's been a year since North Carolina revamped its Medicaid program, turning it over to five private companies to handle. But some smaller healthcare businesses are still waiting to get paid. One Concord business alone is waiting on $80,000 worth of claims. A, stop, a top state official told WCNC Charles Nate Morabito that he takes personal responsibility for the failure. North Carolina had years to prepare for the Medicaid change that took effect last summer, but the companies now in charge bear some responsibility too. And we've learned the state fined some of them big money for falling short on promises. I can't run a business like this. Corey Pena is a man of faith. I'm just like, God, help me. But the rollout of North Carolina's Medicaid managed care program. We owe $144,000. Has shaken his trust in the government. We were getting ready to sell our house. And left his pediatric orthotics business on the brink of bankruptcy. It's kind of like I'm successful, but I'm closing my business. That's devastating. In November, WCNC Charlotte first documented Pena's challenges with the transition. It allows them to do this. And issues with several of the prepaid health plans, or PHPs, that manage the program. But instead of things improving... Oh, we'll fix it. Pena says his unpaid claims have grown to $83,000. That's what all these PHPs owe us. Forcing him to spend most of his time... Right. ...troubleshooting rather than helping his patients. It's unfair. State records show the Medicaid ombudsman's received an especially high number of complaints in recent months, more than a third of those tied to claims and reimbursements. Meanwhile, data reveal the five companies running the program are denying a little more than one out of every four claims. I think we're seeing a higher denial rate than we want. Dave Richard is Medicaid's deputy secretary. The numbers that we're seeing, although concerning, um, they're very small numbers still. He says the program overall is serving the needs of low-income and vulnerable patients and largely reimbursing medical providers in a timely fashion. But he's also aware the program's repeatedly failing some small business owners like Corey Pena. We thought it had been corrected. My fault for not digging deeper in that point to make sure that it had been. To be out $83,000 a year in is ridiculous. It is, it's, it, again, I will say this, no excuse. You did everything right. And we just did not, um, we did not deliver. And, and that's, again, on me, it's on our team, it's on our health plans, and, and we'll get better at doing those. 
As an extra incentive, the state is penalizing the health plans when they don't live up to their end of the bargain. Richard says he's made it clear to those companies. They need to focus on getting it right for smaller providers like Pena. We hate what happened to this one provider. We think in general the, the program is going well. We think it will continue to improve, um, but, but we can't have providers put in this position. As the program improves, so does Pena's outlook. This is a miracle of God. It took him begging for help, but he finally feels heard. I believe and trust that this situation is going to turn around. It hasn't happened quite yet, but I'm, I'm not selling my house. Now full of hope, he's putting his faith back into the same program he says nearly cost him his dream. Great news. He expects to get a check for about $37,000 from one of the companies as soon as this week. Nate Morabito, WCNC Charlotte. Hey folks, come interact with me on social media. Let us know if there's something you want us to talk about. Let us know what you think about the show, and we'll see you back here next weekend.